That was my final and last attempt to do a plea bargain with you. When you say it was your last... I went right up to the edge of the lake. All you had to do was push me in with your finger, and I would have made any deal possible. Do you understand, Mr. Durst? You're not answering the question that I asked you. Do you understand that? I am answering the question. You said, Nick Chalin said, that I confessed to him after dinner, and I am telling you that after dinner, we had no conversation. So when you said a moment ago, under oath, in this courtroom, that I've never done that, was that more perjury? That was a mistake. Mr. Durst, this is my last question. As you sit here right now, I'm gonna ask you, did you kill Susan Berman? Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Tuesday, August 31st, Robert Durst took the stand for his 13th day of gripping testimony. In his final day of cross-examination, the defendant appeared agitated, lashing out at prosecutor John Lewin and expressing his frustration with the court's rulings. During Tuesday's proceedings, Lewin confronted the defendant with some of the most damning evidence in this case, Durst's alleged confessions. From the now infamous bathroom audio in the jinx to admissions that Durst made while on the stand in this trial. We'll explore precisely how John Lewin used his final hours of cross to turn the defendant's own words against him. That's coming up after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On the morning of August 31st, John Lewin questioned Robert Durst about the first time they met after Durst's arrest in New Orleans, Louisiana. All right, let's talk about the New Orleans interview that you had with myself and detectives in a little more detail. You agree that was completely voluntary on your part, correct? Completely voluntary. You were read your rights, correct? Correct. No one forced you to speak, correct? Correct. Now, during the New Orleans interview, at one point in time, you brought up the idea that you could, quote, go through what you did with Kathy, and I think you want me to go through details of Susan and say, okay, so now what would I ask for? Unquote. That's what you said, correct? Yes, that was my final and last attempt to do a plea bargain with you. When you say it was your last... I went right up to the edge of the lake. All you had to do was push me in with your finger, and I would have made any deal possible. In fact, Mr. Durst, didn't you follow up what I just asked you by saying, quote, if I tell you these things, I'm pleading guilty. I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles and doing my time, unquote. Is that what you said? Yeah. Tell me how that is not a confession to Susan Berman's murder. It's not a confession. 
I did not say I killed I want to play RD 538. I would like to talk to you um, when you come back in court today. That's going to be up to you what you do. I don't know whether there'll be a lawyer there today. I don't know what that lawyer is going to tell you. If, He's going to tell me to shut my mouth, of course. And, and then, and this one, I'll tell you, you have every right to listen to your lawyer and to do what your lawyer says. I think you know that you've already told me, you've already told, you've talked enough. I have enough now. I, I, what I want to talk about when we get back is I want to find out what is it that we can discuss where I can get the truth about some of the things that you've said you, you couldn't really answer for me. But you, you have told me, correct, that there is, you know what I want, correct? Yes, you'd like some details from me if I knew yes. about where Kathy's body is. And about what happened to Susan. Those and about what happened okay. to Susan. And, and you would agree that you're in the position, if you want, to tell me more than you have. So about that, I'm not about to go that far. Okay. But, well, but wait a minute. Because you're telling me, though, that I want to understand when you're saying, tell me what. what well, you asked me I what I thought you wanted to hear. I think what you wanted to hear, Nate and McCormick happy, is what? What did you do with Kathy? Right. And I think you want me to go through details of, of, of Susan. I do. Okay, so now, what would I ask for? Tell me. If I tell you those things, I'm pleading guilty. Okay. And I'm pleading guilty, I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles, to California, and doing my time. You would agree, Mr. Durst, that you were proposing that if you tell us what you did with Kathy and what actually happened with Susan, what would I be able to do for you? Is that correct? Right. Mr. Durst, how could you tell us what you did with Kathy if you didn't kill her and dispose of her body? I wouldn't have been able to. And how could you go through the details of Susan if you were not the person who murdered her? I would not have been able to go into so your position is you are saying all this to get a plea bargain, correct? Correct. And a plea deal. The point of a plea deal is, is that in the end, in order for your plea deal to come to go through, you have to give us what you're offering on your end, and we have to give you what you're requesting on our end. Is that correct? I never said I knew what happened to Susan. I never said I knew where Kathy was. Mr. Durst, your attorney said during opening statements that the during the New Orleans interview, you were, quote, playing me. Can you explain, is that your position of what was going on? Yes. Well, would you agree that playing somebody has the inference that you are not actually dealing in good faith, correct? Sure. Lewin then turned his attention to someone who had seemingly played Durst, his once dear friend, Nick Chavin. Let's talk about Nick Chavin for a moment. You've agreed that at the time Kathy disappeared, Nick Chavin was one of your best friends, correct? Correct. Mr. Durst, you were very concerned about Nick Chavin's testimony while you were in custody. What's he going to end up saying at trial, correct? I don't believe I was very concerned until he came out with his last story. SG-076, 
jail call with Susan Giordano. The audio from this jail call and several others played during today's testimony is difficult to hear, so we've cut it down to its clearest and most essential parts. And periodically, we will recap the gist of what has been said if the ensuing questioning doesn't clarify it. Anyway, it makes me very nervous waiting to find out what the it's going to be about control screen. Um, I'll tell you, 100% positive. Go ahead. Yeah, and I'll tell you that she is 100% in your corner. Boy, that's good. You're sure, really, really. I am really, really sure. That made your night because at that point you were terrified that Nick was going to relay the confession about Susan that you'd made to him after your dinner, correct? We would have to leave out the word terrified and in jail. It does not take very much to make one's night. <laughs> Mr. Durst, you would agree that at this point in time, Nick Chavin has not testified yet, correct? Correct. And at this point in time, he is not returning the calls from your lawyers, correct? That's what you're being told. I told my lawyers to leave him alone. All Nick wanted was attention. So, Mr. Durst, you are sitting in this call with Susie Giordano, and she is telling you, don't worry, Bob. Nick's 100% on your side. I'm positive, correct? That's what she's telling you. I think she was telling me that because Nick had told her that. Most of strike is non-responsive. Stricken. Every time I come up with an answer that you don't like, you get the judge to strike. It's interesting you use the term come up with an answer. Not answer, but come up with an answer. I'm just curious. Why do you use the term come up with an answer, which you would agree implies that it's not a true answer, it's something you're making up on the spot. What does it mean? Overruled. It's my way I talk. Me meaning me lying? To think of what I want to say to you. And then when I come up with my answer, you ask the judge to tell the jury to ignore it. So Mr. Durst, listen to my question. Isn't it true that Susie Giordano is telling you that she's a hundred percent sure Nick is in your corner. She was telling me what Nick had told her. Most to strike is non-responsive. Stricken. Listen to my question. <laughs> it's not responsive. It's a hundred percent responsive. Despite Durst's obstinance, the prosecutor forged ahead, emphasizing Durst's concern about Nick Chavin testifying with yet another jail call. You called Nick from the New Orleans jail, correct? Don't recall. NC 210. I figure it was about a year ago, actually two years ago. I've been in here a year, and I figure it was about a year before that that my good friend Andrew Giretti sent me to prison that we had dinner. Right, yeah, I think it was about a year ago. That bastard, Jack, you remember I told you not to do it. I remember I told you, right? You can stop it. I don't want to be in it. Mr. Durst, 
does that now refresh your memory about having had a conversation with Nick Chavin on April 8, 2016? You agree. You bring up the dinner that you had with Nick during this call, correct? It was the only thing I could refer to because I hadn't even spoken to him in the last 20 years. Well, would you agree, Mr. Durst, that alternative explanation for that could be that you're bringing up the dinner with Nick Chavin very early in the conversation because you know that you confessed to him during that dinner and you are trying to figure out where Nick stands and what he's going to do. Would you agree? I would not agree. You would agree that Nick Chavin, during his testimony, he said that you had confessed to him about Susan after dinner, is that correct? Correct. And by the way, did he specifically testify that you told him I murdered Susan or did he instead testify that you told him it was either her or me, I had no choice? We had no conversation after dinner. He left the restaurant before I did because I was opening up my Motion door. to strike is non-responsive. I'll strike it. Mr. Durst, listen to my oh, question. Here it is again. You don't like my answer, so I'm not allowed to give you my answer. Mr. Durst, listen to my question. You seem like you're getting angry. Is that a question? Well, I'm... I'm you can ask him if he's getting Mr. Durst, are, are you getting I angry? I am getting angry. This is ridiculous. You ask me a question, and I am not allowed to answer it. Do you understand, Mr. Durst? You're not answering the question that I asked you. Do you understand that? I am answering the question. You said, Nick Chavin said, that I confessed to him after dinner, and I am telling you that after dinner, we had no conversation. I'm not asking you whether or not the event happened. You're aware that Nick Chavin testified. His version of what occurred is not that you said, I murdered Susan Berman. It's that you said to him, it was either her or me, I had no choice, correct? So I cannot respond to what you're asking me. You can answer the question that I'm asking you. I could answer the question you're asking me, but that would not be a meaningful answer. Well, I guess that's for myself, the judge, and the jury to decide. So you get to answer the well, question. I'd like the jury to decide it. Oh, trust me, they will. You won't let me your speak Honor. it. Well, could the court instruct the witness that he is not to decide what he wants right. to answer? No, no that's... There's a, there's a way that it's done. And this is, I will do it the Thank way you, it's Ron. done. After this antagonistic exchange, Lewin took a detour, inquiring about a cruel joke that Durst once played on his brother, Thomas. Do you remember the Durst Obesity Clinic, Mr. Durst? I think you titled it the Durst Obesity Center. Do you remember it? No. It's just going to be, this is, uh, I think it's People's at 280. I'm going to read it in the interest of time. The top left, there is... You would agree that appears to be an image of a of an obese person. Is that correct? I think Sarah Kaufman put that together. At your direction, correct, Mr. Durst? I don't know about it, my direction. Well, it says the Durst Obesity Center, and then it has an address. And that address at the time was the address of your brother Tom. Is that correct? I did not think that Tom ever lived in Ross, California. The item says as follows. 
We are excited to announce the opening of the Durst Obesity Center, and we intend to serve the needs of the obese Marin community. We are Tommy and Diane Durst, the founders of the Durst Obesity Center, DOC, along with our fat children, Emily and Daniel. Mr. Durst, Tommy and Diane Durst, that's your brother and sister-in-law, correct? Correct. So, I'm gonna read, how often have you been stared at? How many lectures have you been forced to listen to? We will reform your thinking process and encourage you to see the positive aspects of obesity and to accept your, quote, right to food enjoyment. We will have both seminars and individual appointments to advise on the benefits of the truly obese lifestyle and how wonderful you will feel to finally get off the treadmill. We, Tommy and Diane, the obese ones, are available to our members 24 hours, seven days a week with no need to worry about late night emergencies. We have many years of experience leading the obese lifestyle and can help you with your toughest eating decisions. The recommended combination of foods will be chosen specially for the unique needs of each of our members and is guaranteed to make each of your pig outs truly memorable. That's the first part. Please continue. Then you have something that's called Durst Obesity Center testimonials. I was fat, but I came to the Durst, Durst Obesity Center and found that I was not fat, but society was anorexic. Now I am obese, happy, and married to a man I met at the Durst Obesity Center. And then you have a kind of a cover sheet with an obese person, and it says, Durst Obesity Center. Here at the Durst Obesity Center, we believe you can have your cake and eat it too, and your pizza, and your Ben and Jerry's, and your ribs, and your Chinese, and you can have them over and over again. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that in fact, Sarah Kaufman's part of it was you gave him the handwritten part of this while you were in custody in Galveston and you had him computerize what you had already written, correct? Totally incorrect. So it's your position that Sarah Kaufman had all the information about your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law, your niece and nephew, and that he is the one who is behind this uh, mocking, I don't know what to call it. He's the one behind it all? Yes, he was trying to get on my good side and get money out of me. Why? He was very successful. Why would making something so cruel like this get on your good side? Because he thinks I'm estranged from my family. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you have constantly mocked your brother Tom since he was very young for his weight? No. My brother Tom was seven years younger than me. I hardly saw him until I until the two of us were adults. Following this display of Durst's brutal mockery, Lewin continued to question Durst's integrity by asking about his history of faking illness. Have you ever faked or discussed faking an illness or medical condition in either of your homicide cases? No. In fact, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that your playbook of kind of faking medical conditions goes all the way back to your arrest in Pennsylvania and your trial in Galveston? I have no playbook of faking medical conditions. Please put up LADA 130635, please. That's your handwriting, correct, Mr. Durst? Correct. And I'm going to read it. It says, correct, if I am wrongfully convicted, I will be an inmate in Texas where all inmates, except those with medical reasons, work. I would like to know if there is an eye disease or impairment that I could fake. 
I was once diagnosed as having glaucoma because I did not pay attention to the flashing lights and seemingly missed most of them. Is there a condition or disease that is hard to diagnose except by the symptoms that the patient describes? Please assume that the doctors, many quite elderly who work in the Texas prison, would take other jobs if they were available. Also assume that the equipment is 10 to 15 years old. Obviously, I would not attempt to fake blindness. All that is necessary is that I have some problems. And then you signed the letter and wrote the words color blindness on the side of the letter. Is that correct? Well, Mr. Durst, that would appear to be you faking a condition you don't have, correct? So when you said a moment ago, under oath, in this courtroom, that I've never done that, was that more perjury? That was a mistake. This was a letter I wrote a long time ago to an eye doctor. Let me ask something else. Are there other instances, Mr. Durst, where you have attempted to fake medical conditions or other conditions? To the best of my knowledge, the only time I ever thought about faking a medical condition was when I wrote this letter. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, Jail called to Susan Giordano, page 14, line 18, to page 5, line 17. Durst starts the call asking Susie if she knows if there's a blood test for dementia. Susie says there's no blood test, but there are tests given by psychologists. Put it in your own words. Is there a way to tell somebody has dementia, like a blood yeah. test or something? There are tests. A lot of them are due to college instruments. But they are tested again. And um, it starts off most people who I'm not telling you, you. I'm not getting any of this. Okay. The question is, is there a test for dementia? A blood test yeah. or something? No. The only two psychologists there's no actual test for dementia. There's no specific test for it. That's what I wanted to know. Giordano goes on to explain that her uncle had dementia, and she describes some of the first symptoms of the cognitive disorder. Durst listens for a while and then says this. Well, if there's no physical test, then it doesn't make any difference. I'm thinking it's going to be to my advantage to say I'm suffering from dementia. It sounds like something or other. Does that refresh your memory, Mr. Durst? I still don't remember the conversation. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that you were having a conversation with Susie Giordano discussing, A, whether you could fake dementia and how you might get caught, whether there were tests or not, correct? Correct. And Mr. Durst, at the time that you were having this conversation, you weren't suffering from dementia, correct? Correct. And you're not suffering from dementia now, correct? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hold up. 
After establishing that Durst repeatedly considered lying about his health to improve his situation, Lewin questioned the defendant about other lies he may have told to help his case. Mr. Durst, you have stated previously that for the most part, you tell the truth. And I think you said that as an example, you have only lied about a couple of things. Is that correct? I thought we were talking about the Galveston trial. Now I'm, now I'm talking about your trial here. I lied about several things. And when you say several things, Mr. Durst, uh, would you agree that several is more likely many? I would say five. Your best estimate is five. Correct. In the afternoon, Lewin returned to this line of inquiry, asking Durst to specify his five lies under oath. Mr. Durst, you testified this morning that you have perjured yourself five times. Do you recall that? Correct. What are the five? Oh, I don't know. Two of them I've repeated repeatedly at the Galveston trial. I said I was in Northern California when I was in Southern California. The second one was when I said I had not written the cadaver note. I imagine I could come up with three more if I tried. Five. So I'm asking, so what are the five? You named two. What are the other three? Let's see, what else? What else was I under oath? The question originally was how many lies under oath, how many instances of perjury do you believe you've committed during this trial? And I believe you said five. So I'm asking, what are those five? I would have to think about it. Go ahead. I can't think of them. Having successfully led Durst to admit he committed perjury, Lewin set another trap for the defendant using his words from earlier in the day. All right, Mr. Durst, it's your sworn testimony that you have no idea what happened to Kathy, correct? Correct. And you've also testified that you are unaware of any crime scene, correct? I agree. You don't know if she drowned somewhere, correct? Correct. So, Mr. Durst, if you have no idea what happened to Kathy and where she is, can you please explain why you said this this morning? Please play A. You are now saying that the point of that was you're trying to get a plea deal, correct? Correct. And a plea deal, the point of a plea deal is, is that in the end, in order for your plea deal to come to go through, you have to give us what you're offering on your end, and we have to give you what you're requesting on our end. Is that correct? Objection. Overruled. Overruled. Statement of the law. Overruled. I never said I knew what happened to Susan. I never said I knew where Kathy was buried. Stop. Mr. Durst, why did you say you never said you knew where Kathy was buried? How do you know Kathy's buried at all? Same psychological step. Well, Mr. Durst, would you agree that you talking about the fact that Kathy was buried would seem, Mr. Durst, to be implying that you know, in fact, that she was buried, correct? I was telling you what I thought you wanted to hear. Wait, you're not saying you were trying to get a plea deal this morning while we were in court, are you? That's this morning. So when I said buried, I misspoke. When you say you misspoke, Mr. Durst, 
Was I talking about where Kathy was buried? You were talking about a hypothetical if she was dead. Did I mention her being buried at all? No. Who's the only person that mentioned her being buried? Me. Gaining momentum, the prosecutor now confronted Durst with his most famous alleged confession. All right, Mr. Durst, I want to talk about what has been referred to as the bathroom audio. You're aware of this, correct? Correct. On April 18, 2012, at the end of the interview, when you were confronted with the Serum note and the cadaver note and could not say which one you had written, which one you had not written, what was your state of mind when that happened? I felt like he had caught me writing a cadaver note. And you walked in to the bathroom right after that, and before the door could even close, what did you say? I don't know. You said, there it is, you're caught, correct? I accept that. You have a habit when you get nervous of talking to yourself, correct? I talk to myself when I'm nervous and when I'm not nervous. And you would agree that while you were in the bathroom, Mr. Durst, you said the words, killed them all, of course, correct? I think what I said was, they'll all think I killed them all. Can we cue it up, please? I want you to listen, Mr. Durst. Mm -hmm. Killed them all, of course. Mr. Durst, do you agree that you said those words, those five words, killed them all, of course. I think I said what I just said I said. They'll all think I killed them all, of course. So you think that you added, they'll all think before the words, I killed them all, of course, is that correct? That's correct. Do you understand, Mr. Durst, that your attorneys have already stipulated that what we just played is unaltered, unedited footage. Well, I don't understand that, now you're telling me. But I don't think the mic picked up everything I said. Looking at the rest of it, it cries out that I was saying a lot more stuff than the mic picked up. So listen to my question, Mr. Durst. Do you agree that in the unedited, stipulated recording, that the only words that are on that recording at that section are the five words, killed them all, of course. I agree. In the wake of that exchange on the bathroom audio, John Lewin moved on to question the defendant about a statement he made to a reporter back in 2015, a statement that would, in retrospect, appear to be a hubristic challenge. Mr. Durst, I want to talk about Charlie Bagley for a moment. Mr. Bagley is someone that you know pretty well, correct? Correct. When did you first start speaking to him? Shortly after my Galveston trial. And you agree that no one ever forced you to talk to him. It was 100% a voluntary decision on your part? Correct. And you agree that the vast majority of those conversations were on the record, correct? I thought they were all on the record. And how many times do you think you've spoken to him? Is it likely dozens? Correct. Now, Mr. Durst, at the time that you were talking to Charlie Bagley, that was after you'd been acquitted in Morris Black's death. And so you knew that you could not be prosecuted for his murder again, correct? 
But you knew there was no statute of limitations on murder with relation to Kathy and Susan, correct? So you were also aware that every lawyer you had spoken to was telling you not to talk to the media, correct? That's not correct. A lot of people encouraged me to talk to the media. Mr. Durst, but you agree that you were talking to Charlie Bagley at a time when you had already perjured yourself in Galveston and at a time when you knew that you had written the cadaver note but were lying about it, correct? Correct. So what made you talk to him? Why would you do that? Was it cockiness or arrogance? Why did you do it? I thought he would write something fair and positive about me. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that on February 6, 2015, two days before the Jinx miniseries started, you told Charlie Bagley regarding the Susan Berman investigation, quote, it's a long time ago. Some DA would have to commence a major budget-busting investigation. I don't see that happening, end quote. Correct? Correct. So you thought that in essence, Mr. Durst, you were in the clear regarding Susan Berman. Is that right? Correct. As the day came to a close, John Lewin used his final moments of cross-examination to underscore the most powerful elements of the people's case, Robert Durst's own incriminating statements and his history of deceit, even under oath. Mr. Durst, you are just about done with your cross-examination. You have now admitted that you have perjured yourself at least five times during your testimony at this trial. And you have stated that you would perjure yourself to any question involving whether you killed Susan, whether you killed Kathy, or whether you killed Morris. That is what you have stated, correct? Correct. Can you explain then, Mr. Durst, given your history of perjury while you have testified and your statement that you will continue to perjure yourself regarding any of those three critical areas, how is anybody supposed to figure out when you are telling the truth and when you're lying? They would have to use their life experiences to decide if what was brought up at this trial is meaningful in terms of whether or not I killed Susan Berman. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if somebody looking at this case decides that you know what, Bob Durst confessed to Nick Chabin, that if in fact that statement happened, you agree that's incredibly damaging, is that correct? I have repeatedly said that I did not confess to Nicky Chabin. And Mr. Durst, you would agree that if somebody listening to your audio where it says, killed them all, of course, decides that you said that and does not believe your explanation, that that is extremely incriminating, correct? Killed them all, of course, sounds like it's part of a bigger sentence. Except when you listen to the audio, all you hear you would agree, Mr. Durst, are the five damning words, killed them all, of course, correct? It's a whole lot more than I said in the bathroom. Mr. Durst, this is my last question. As you sit here right now, 
I'm going to ask you, did you kill Susan Berman? No. But if you had, you would lie about it, correct? Correct. Nothing further. Joining us again, as usual, is Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Thank you. So today, Charlie, Lewin began by confronting Durst about elements of his New Orleans interview with Durst, and specifically statements in which Durst insinuated that he knew what happened to Susan and to Kathy, and then said, how is that not a confession? What did you make of Bob's response to that? It's another example of Bob skating so close to the edge of what would seem to be the truth. But I think the prosecutor was also leading the jury to that same point. Well, how is that not a confession? Remember, he is playing to the jury, and and Bob's really still playing to himself. Absolutely. One of my favorite moments from that section was when Lewin asked Bob if he thought he was playing Lewin in the New Orleans interview, and Bob said yes, and then kind of tried to backtrack. Another moment that stuck out to me was the phone calls with Nick Chavin and about Nick Chavin. Charlie, what did you think about those? I thought the confusion in the Durst camp was huge, and they, they knew that something was up, and they just didn't know exactly what. And, you know, at one point, Susie Giordano tells Bob, you know, I'm telling you, he's 100% in your corner. Uh, and she just totally missed the boat on that. But it, it, it's also at a, happening at a time when Nick is struggling with whether or not to reveal what he says Bob told him at their dinner in December of 2014. He would stop short of saying what happened at this dinner, where the dinner took place. At one point, he even denied that it happened. And that left room for Bob to hope that Nick was in his camp. You know, during this section today where Lewin's asking Durst about Nick, Bob went off and tried to give his answers where he jams everything in that he wants to jam in there. And the judge kept striking his answers as unresponsive, prodded by John Lewin's objections. What did you make of Bob's anger and frustration there? Were we seeing behind the curtain a bit? I think we were. Uh, That's a good way to put it. He was getting stopped at every turn. And and I think it was really frustrating. He was not able to perform. Right. I have a question for both of you about something that happened in this section. It doesn't sound like Susie Giordano is going to be called back in, but based on the way that it sounds like she was trying to get Nick Chavin not to testify, do either of you think there's going to be any consequences for her? I don't think so. I mean, should she be concerned about it? Absolutely. Bob threw her under the bus by claiming that he told her that he wrote the cadaver note when she testified under oath that he did not talk at all about Susan Berman's death. And more evidence of witness tampering. Susie Giordano would seem to have a fair amount of areas to be concerned about. But at the end of the day, I don't think that anybody is going to bring any charges against her. Certainly not here, likely not in New York. Charlie, what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. It's clear that she perjured herself. At the same time, I I think that Susan, in that sequence, becomes not just a, a woman that seemed to be in love with Bob or Bob's money, but actually an agent of Bob's, who was doing his bidding and 
calling up Nick repeatedly during this period uh, and quizzing him as to what he was doing and what he was thinking. Uh, this, I, I think it makes her much more of a player in this drama. Moving on to a, another area, what did you make of this Durst Obesity Clinic letter that Bob had in his possession in the files that were taken from Susie Giordano's house that Bob said was written by Sarah Kaufman and was used to ridicule Thomas Durst and his family? I wondered about the wisdom of using that. What did you think of it, Charlie? It's typical of his sort of juvenile humor to be mocking his brother. You know, they're both adults and he's mocking his brother as obese. But just as importantly, Bob is also a guy that's always been very conscious of his weight. All of Bob's uh, sort of lifelong obsessions are manifest there. Yeah. And then Charlie, in the afternoon, you became a topic of conversation. I think we're all wondering, how did you feel when that happened? And were you afraid at any point that you were going to be called to the stand? I was on the witness stand at, at one time. In this case, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of witnesses for 20 years. So my name has come up a, a lot in court. And there was a moment early on when the defense wanted to exclude me from the courtroom. I suppose in in that instance, they were hoping that I could impeach the testimony of Nick Chavin. It was definitely not the first time your name came up, but what was interesting is that the reason you were brought up today was something that you wrote, I know you wrote in the past in the New York Times and on a couple of other occasions, but you wrote in your series about Robert Durst, about his almost taunting statement that there isn't a prosecutor out there that has the stamina and the budget to do a budget-busting investigation and prosecution of him. I found it particularly fitting that something that you wrote at crimestory.com made its way into the trial. Yeah, I mean, this is a question that probably everyone has. In 2010, Bob was a free man. He wandered about the country, you know, flitting between uh, homes in New York, Texas, and California. And if he hadn't opened his mouth, he wouldn't be in court today. We all wonder, why did you do this? And again, it's it's Bob's skewed perspective where he said, well, I didn't think anybody was going to go to the trouble and expense of reinvestigating this old, old cold case. And he made that statement, as I recall, during the course of the airing of the jinx. It was as recent as 2015, correct? Correct. I mean, he, he just totally misplayed this. And he has no one else to blame because, as he's acknowledged, his friends and even some of his lawyers told him, don't poke the bear. You never know when some prosecutor is going to get pissed off and come after you. And of course, now what did happen? One of the best cold case prosecutors in the country picked up the ball and ran with it. So a number of instances today where Lewin asks Bob about certain statements that he's made and Bob denies having made them or obfuscates and Lewin plays the receipts, as it were. There were moments about Bob saying that he would fake illness in order to receive sympathy or better treatment. Bob denied it. Lewin plays the tape. But then there was the big gotcha moment, which was playing testimony from the morning's proceedings. 
in which Bob says, I never said I knew what happened to Susan. I never said I knew where Kathy was buried. What was it like in the courtroom when he played that? Because just watching it on television, it was pretty shocking. It was. And I'm not sure everybody grasped it at the moment he said it, but certainly Lewin pounced. And it was like, wait a minute, what do you mean buried? It was very dramatic to me. I mean, it was another slip up. And of course, toward the end of the day came the big moment where Lewin asked Bob about the bathroom audio, about there it is, you're caught, and particularly about killed them all, of course. Bob played it off again, as he had said to Dick DeGuerin during direct testimony. What I was really saying there was, they'll think I killed them all, of course. Lewin played the audio, and you hear what sounds like belching and urination, and then you hear killed them all, of course. You didn't hear anything else in there, did you, Charlie? No, no. I think it was a reasonable effort to defend those statements. He's suggesting that he's not verbalizing all the thoughts that are going back and forth in his head. You know, he's got like two voices in there speaking. But, you know, at the same time, before he even closes the door to the bathroom, he says, there it is, you're caught. Yeah, there was no caveat like, oh my God, they're going to think I did it now. And he didn't say they know now that I wrote the cadaver note. It was kind of definitive, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now, it is also true that these were not full sentences often. You know, I think there were about 18 sentences or, or sentence fragments. And I always thought he could try to have a defense where he says, well, you're not hearing the other voice in my head. Speaking of voices in his head, how about Bob acknowledging that he lied five times under oath in this trial, but couldn't identify which voices told those lies? Right. I wonder if one of those voices told him that he didn't write the cadaver note and then later told him that he did. I don't want to end the episode without remarking on the perfection of John Lewin's final question and answer sequence with Robert Durst. Lewin said, did you kill... Susan Berman. Dirch said, no. Lewin said, but if you did, you wouldn't tell us, correct? And Robert Durst said, correct. All right, guys. So um, that concludes today's conversation and today's episode. Join us again for the next episode where we, I hope and believe we will conclude redirect and recross and the testimony of Robert Durst in his trial for the murder of Susan Berman will be complete. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Bartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.